listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to comedian, author and BBC broadcaster Robin Ince. We don't have enough stories. Science is made of stories. It is made of passions. It is made of people who sit under the stars and then they see the aurora borealis and their first reaction is one of beauty. Not immediately, I must analyse that. The first thing is the gut reaction of beauty. So we need to have, I think, things like that first of all. Robin shared his thoughts on the fascinating role science plays in our everyday lives, how we can avoid becoming too dogmatic about our belief systems, and the incredible importance of being interested. So, Robin, it seems like we both spend our time reading books that we don't fully understand. But thankfully, your new book, The Importance of Being Interested, is finally a book I do understand. And more importantly, it shows that being comfortable with not understanding and sometimes misunderstanding is actually an integral part of being human. But before we get into the many wonders of science that you illuminate, your friend, Professor Brian Cox, calls you a Category 1 idiot. So why is that a resounding compliment? Well, it comes from, because I always used to describe myself when we did our tours, uh, I would describe myself as a professional idiot, that my job was basically, I stand at the side of the stage when we're playing arenas and I listen out to the changing mood of the audience. So for instance, you know, when we were playing the Birmingham Indoor Arena and you just, and it starts off in the first 10 minutes, the audience are there going, um, oh yeah, yeah, oh no, that's pretty. Yeah, no, oh no, I understand that. And then they get to maybe the first equation or an image of light cones and they go, oh, that's yeah, it hurts a little bit now, doesn't it? It's just, no, but I'm I think I'm still getting it. And then normally somewhere between 22 and 24 minutes, it's, there'll be a point where you can just sense that the audience going, right, I don't get this. This uh. is hurting. And then my job is to come out and uh, first of all, just make some silly noises, do some stupid impersonations, mock him a little bit because he obviously he's elevated himself so high now as the grand wizard of science. Mm. And, uh, and then ask the questions that I think a lot of people in the audience might be wondering. So, and, and of course, very often with science shows, people are hearing about ideas, whether they're ideas of, of subatomic particles or ideas about time and black holes, they've never heard about some of these ideas before. So it's it, there's almost an existential shock. So yeah, my job is to basically cover the ground that I think anyone in the audience, whether it's a 10-year-old in the audience, whether it's an 85-year-old in the audience, the ground that they, and, and which which Brian, I think, couldn't comfortably do himself because he would feel as if he was perhaps dumbing himself down. <laughs> so, I mean, it's very easy to be a professional idiot because I'm an amateur idiot as well. Um, but yeah, the category one idiot is basically being aware of your ignorance. Not, mm. not being content with your ignorance, though also being aware that every time that you find out something new, rather than go, oh, now I know a little bit more, more often than not, and I'm sure you've found this, you go, I found out a new thing, but that turns out it opens a door into that whole warehouse yeah. of questions I didn't even know existed. And sometimes it can be, you know, as I mentioned in the book, I, I'm normally in rooms where I am the most ignorant person in the room. Uh, and I think that is a very good position to be in. But sometimes you can go, oh, just for once. I'd like, you know, the ego can, can, can be bruised by that. But of course, we live in a culture at the moment where it's, we're just surrounded by these, you know, 
utterly certain dogmatic individuals who are given huge platforms mm. by the media and they've got their megaphones and you have all of these columnists who, you know, they write a column that's utterly certain one week and then they write a column that's totally contradictory about it the next week and yet at no point have they acknowledged that maybe I was wrong last time. Yeah. yeah well, it does feel like we're entering this world of, of scientism. It's becoming, in a weird sort of way, its own weird little religion. And, and I guess the book, in a way, it's sort of tries to stop us from from going full throttle into pure science because it's so clear from the 400 pages in actual fact Robin you you're, you're not an idiot what's very clear is actually you're you're incredibly smart but you're smart in a in a differentiated way and in a way that would see you alienated in a scientific lab but welcomed in a comedy club but shouldn't we all embrace the weirdness of our own brains shouldn't we embrace that little bit of us that really doesn't understand oh we should entirely but we should always be aware that the problem is once we become certain the problem is once yep. we're dogmatic and, and some people from the moment they've left school they will close down their minds and they will go with the I mean we see this about the disparity for instance on ethical judgment depending on what side of the political spectrum someone is in or what kind of comedian they are or whatever it is and so I think you know with, with the scientists that I know they embrace doubt mm. and in fact I also say that it's, it's like I, I write a little bit about religion in, in the book as well and, and the religious people that I hang around with you know which which includes a, a, a bishop amongst others they are always wrestling with their doubt and in, in fact some of my friends who are religious uh they have more doubt about their religion than they do about natural selection or the big bang mm. um but i think it's really important to just always hold on to your beliefs with a loose grip and be prepared to go there is new i mean it's one of the problems that happened you know at the beginning of the pandemic I think there was some scientist who thought, oh, right, the one good thing that's going to come out of this is all this rubbish about people are bored of experts. Mm. And it's odd because we're told people are bored of experts, but actually we've never had so many people who believe they themselves are experts. While they say they're bored yeah. of experts, they're utterly certain about the, the nonsense that they found. And, and I think some people thought, oh, this is going to be a good time. And then the moment they started to see the government going, the science, they were like, oh, well, this is not how we frame science with the science. You know, this idea that, especially at the beginning of a pandemic, there will be a very fast change in terms of our understanding of how to deal with it, the change in the understanding of things like masks, the change in the understanding of, of how vaccines now work. All of those things, are uh, you, you need to keep up to date with them. And you need to realise that at certain points you go, uh, in the early days, what is the best way of dealing with this? And what the government did, as far as I can see, was uh, follow the science that they chose, the cherry-picked science, which they felt justified their frequently incredibly poor decisions and, and dismal mismanagement. Well, well, let's return to this idea of, of scientific dogmas, because as I was reading those first couple of chapters of the book, I was I was thinking, is he going to say him? Is he going to mention him? Is he going to mention Robert Anton Wilson by any <laughs> chance? And, and I've always been a fan of, of Robert Anton Wilson's idea of universal agnosticism. So, Robin, what is that and why should scientists have catmas as well as dogmas? <laughs> well, it is always, again, it's back to having the loose grip on on, on what you believe. It's, it's about having doubt around everything to, to or go, this is what I'm going to go with for the time being. It doesn't mean inaction, you know, because I think sometimes there's the famous story, which I can't remember if I put in the book or not, because I cut out so many, I cut out 100,000 <laughs> words in that. But there's the story that I think Bertrand Mussel tells in Skeptical Essays of the uh, the skeptic who walks past his uh, teacher and sees that his head is stuck in a ditch. Yeah. And he thinks, well, how can I be certain that he wants me to pull him out of that ditch? And 
sometimes you know, there's a level of skepticism which people believe leads to inaction, but it's that bit of having a healthy doubt. It's a bit of saying we have the least wrong answer at the moment. This is the direction we should definitely travel in. This direction appears to be further away from the fire that is blazing, but there might be a point where we see that that information changes and then we will change direction. So it's about being able, it's trying not to put those kind of, you know, great big fences of barbed wire around yourself which say, I am not allowed to go there. And, and, you know, for skepticism, for instance, I think one of the most interesting questions and my favourite skeptics are those who really want to understand why we sometimes believe things which can seem to hinder us, can be mm. problematic for us, and may well severely damage us. And then sometimes other things about why we might want to believe in ghosts. And you have to work out what you want to fight against and why. Because there's certain issues, you know, as, as I talk about with, with religion, where sometimes I see people just immediately taking someone down because they've got a belief in a God, but you mm. don't even know really what their God is. And is their God something that's justified them, uh, therefore calling people to acts of cruelty? Or is it just something which is in their mind for their understanding of the universe and they, they, they need it? You know, there's a friend of mine, Carlos, who I talked to, who is a brilliant cosmologist, um, but uh, he, and, and he, he believes in God and he just has a rule. He says, I don't allow God into the laboratory. Uh, he gets in the way of science, so he's not allowed into the laboratory, which for, for an omnipresent, you know, deity, some some gods are not overly keen at having the door shut in their face, um, if they're a god with a face, obviously. Yeah. But it was very interesting because he has a deep understanding of the universe, which I do not have, but he does require God to be the first starting point but it doesn't get in the way of the science. God might be currently in the first 10 to the minus 38 of a second of the universe. Maybe if we go a little bit further back in time, he might have to exist in an even smaller little bit of the universe. <laughs> well, it, it does feel often that, that scientists need God somewhere in the room. Wasn't it Terence McKenna that used to say, uh, give us one free miracle and, and we'll uh, sort out the rest? But we, we are in an environment, and you pointed out in this book, we're in an environment where most people feel more comfortable stating their opinions on things like Twitter than they are asking questions. So how do we get more people to, to be interested, I guess, to ask those questions? I think one of the problems is in the education. I think we have lots of great teachers, but they are often burdened by a curriculum, which is just about memorising ideas. So mm -hmm. we are basically creating a pub quiz team uh, rather than creating people who are inquisitive. We don't have enough stories. Science is made of stories. It is made of passions. It is made of people who sit under the stars and then they see the aurora borealis and their first reaction is one of beauty. Not immediately, I must analyse that. The first thing is the gut reaction of beauty. So we need to have, I think, things like that, first of all. I was talking to a Jewish friend of mine who, who said the other day, he said, one of the things that I think is great, the fact that I've been brought up in a Jewish culture is I am allowed to answer a question with a question. Yeah. So that thing of not worrying about being right, that thing, if, I mean, oddly enough, in a, in a very small way, the other day someone asked me something and I said, oh, I, do, I, do, I don't know that and I'm not the right person to ask. Here are some people you should approach. And someone afterwards said, thank you very much for, for not just giving an answer. And I was like, mm. isn't that odd? That to me, it's a totally natural thing, or certainly has become more and more natural to when I'm doing Q&As after the book session or when I'm doing stand-up shows, is to go, some, someone asked me on Saturday, they said, can you tell me exactly what a wormhole is? I said, I'm not the person to ask. You want to go and look up Sean Carroll, and there's some great things on YouTube with him telling what wormholes are. I was able to tell them a story about wormholes, but I said, I'm not the person to so do not trust my opinion. And that's another thing I've always tried to say in, in, in my shows is, don't trust what I say. 
If you really like an idea <laughs> and you want to share that idea with other people, look it up, check on it, you know, make sure before you share it around because I might have misunderstood it. And otherwise we end up with that telephone game where someone stands on stage, they appear to have authority, they say something with authority and uh, then someone passes on to their mate and their friend and their friend and their friend. And it turns out the thing at the beginning was wrong already. By the end, it's, you know, it's an utterly insane picture of the universe. Well, well, there's a fine line, isn't there, Robin? Because as your friend Tim Minchin points out, if you open your mind too much, your brain might fall out. And if you ask too many questions, you can start becoming a conspiracy theorist. You can become a, a, a David Icke rather than a Brian Cox. Well, also it's about, see, the questions there are interesting because are you asking your questions to justify your belief that you already have? Now, I think a lot of the way that someone like David Icke works, who pretends he's creating this thing to open your mind to lots of different realities, but is actually shutting a lot of doors and telling you a huge number of people not to trust and why you need to trust his belief in the moon being a spaceship or whatever it might be that day. And I also think with some of those people, we have to always remember that very often they've monetized their position. They are in an industry to Mm. constantly, like a columnist, like a newspaper columnist who's always got some acerbic opinion, some venal opinion, some way of generating, you know, an, an envy or distracting from the real problems of the world, that they need to keep generating some of these things. And and so the question does not come from the place of, I'm asking this question because I'm fascinated. It's coming, I'm asking this question actually because I think it's ridiculous, this idea that we come from apes. Yeah. And I don't think you can get away with it. And so you're asking a question from this very mean-spirited place, mm. which is saying, justify what I believe. And then you don't listen to the answer if the answer doesn't justify what you believe. And that's that's true across the board. So, so in that case, there's no hope of you doing the Illuminati's reptile terrarium with David Icke anytime soon. <laughs> Do you know what? I met David Icke once and I did say to him, <laughs> why would you go on about the reptiles? Because I think that's the bit where a lot of people go, oh, there's some quite interesting things about media control and stuff. And that's what, always what disappoints me. When I, I read one of his, I, I got drunk in a bookshop in Wigtown and I woke up the next day <laughs> and I bought a lot of David Icke books. And what he does, and this is a few people who do this, which is he talks about so so much in five minutes, much of which contradicts itself, but a bit like watching a psychic medium, you pick up on the one sentence that does attach itself to what you wish to believe. And you don't notice that he's basically been doing the same thing as going, I'm getting a Pauline or a Paul or a Terry or a Mike, and they've got a tattoo. They've got no tattoo. They've got a beard. They're bald. It's the same kind of technique. And I I find it, what I find sad is that I think some people have approached him with genuine interesting concerns about how the world runs. And I think we have so much information now available to us that it is, it's a very confusing place to be in. As you said, you know, you go on social media and just you are bombarded. So do you, you have time to whittle everything down. Well, you decide you haven't got time, so you go, well, what is the story that I wish to believe most? Like there's a the story that I tell in the book of one of the, the flat earthers who tells this story of why the ISS, the International Space Station, there's no one actually on the International Space Station. That doesn't exist. It's all filmed. And you've got uh, an astronaut. They're all, they're all floating there, obviously, because they're in perpetual free fall. And one of them starts spinning a bit too much just because, you know, sometimes you can lose control. 
Another astronaut reaches out to stop her spinning, and this guy there says, "And and, th- and th- that's happening because they're on wires. You see, they're all on wires." <laughs> he goes, "Obviously, they've managed to get rid of the wires. I mean, that's the thing is how many different levels in it, but they are mm. on wires, and you'll know that they're on wires as well because look at that astronaut right at the front of the camera there. Once he realizes that wires have gone out of control, he takes a baseball out of his pocket and he starts just throwing the baseball up in the air and catching it to distract you. Now, first of all, you go, "Well, how have the wires fitted in his pocket? How exactly?" Is that baseball being attached? How did he then attach if they weren't in the pocket? It's so much. So it's this thing of going that sometimes we spend so long looking at a very tiny part of the picture that we blank out everything else because everything else might, you know, the, the that flat Earth movie. What's it called? Beyond the uh, beyond beyond the curve. That's it. Beyond the curve. And and the dispiriting thing about that is that there are people there who are ingenious, yeah. and thoughtful, and curious. And they come up with interesting experiments, but their experiments keep proving that the earth is round. And so they keep going, I must improve my experiment. There's something wrong with my experiment. It's not proving what I want to believe. And, you know, that is not entirely, you know, that's not just in that world. We do know that in the history of science, there have been, you know, scientists who have deliberately, you know, botched some of the figures. And, you know, there there Mm. is, we always have to remember that whatever you are as a human being, you are an emotional being as well. And you're a being with an ego. None of us are, you know, if we were entirely cold, unemotional beings who could detach ourselves the moment we did our science, we wouldn't be able to make any decisions when we were doing the science. The, the the beautiful thing about that flat earth documentary is that scene at the end where he's suddenly coming to the realization that in actual fact the earth might be round but he has thousands of thousands of these mm-hmm. paying followers coming to his conferences and he just can't let go of the ruse he has to maintain the ruse but but partly the the, the history of science is one of post truth it is one of irrationality you had to have someone at some point go you know what maybe the earth is round and at that point in time, he was the crazy one. Yeah, that's the problem, I think, is that we keep being told, everyone said Galileo was crazy. Actually, they didn't. Uh, in fact, even that, the Galileo story, of course, the, the, mm. the people who were most against Galileo's discoveries were the people who had most monetized their own faith system. Yeah, But yeah, there are, but there have been in, in, in the history. I've always found it amazing, the fact that the idea of washing your hands in between doing surgery on different people was kind of like, but that doesn't seem to be, you know, no, I really think it's a good idea. No, it's absolutely absolutely fine to have your hands in the, the in in the black blood of a dying man who's had some yeah. terrible leprous pustuly disease and then you know you pull out a baby from someone the fact mm. that then she gets some pustuly disease and dies within 2 days i don't think is connected to my hands being covered in all this black blood you know and those kind of things are um so but the problem is that because other people have been, and very often it's written about, you know, th- that person had a crazy idea. They weren't believed. So I've, I'm not believed and therefore I'm right is the wrong way of looking at it. <laughs> well, we're, we're constantly told we we have to be right. And it goes back, as you just said, to, to the education system. But there is this constant fine line. It's one between knowledge and ignorance, curiosity and anxiety, sanity and insanity, doubt and certainty. I mean, how do we become comfortable with all these contradictions and yet live in a scientifically progressive world. I think one of the problems we have is that it's very easy to feel shame and there are many people that want to embarrass you and pull you down. And that means that we close our mind off and we get scared of asking questions. And so we just stick with the dogmas we've got because we worry that if we say something aloud in the room, 
people just turn and go, well, that's a stupid thing to say and that's idiotic, you know. Mm. And I think this is one of the things that is, hampers us terribly is, is our, our, our fear of shame. You know, the fact that we judge everyone else from their exterior and ourselves from the interior means we have this huge disparity in terms of what we really think is going on in people's minds and about our own kind of, you know, discomfort with what it is to be human because being human is such a complex thing. And from what we can gather, such an unusual thing to have such a complexity of emotions and questions and loves and hates. And the more that we just open up, I mean, this is a much broader point, I think, The more because I've always found that you know, sometimes I'll stand on stage and I'll bring up something, something about neurodivergence or whatever it will be, and the number of people will come up and go, oh, I always thought that was just me. Hmm. And that's partly it as well, I think, which is we're all a little bit terrified <laughs> and we need to just open up and start and not trust the people who boss us around with their, their definite truths and ask why sometimes we're angry with certain people because so often we're steered into a direction to be, like I mentioned in the book where, where Neil deGrasse Tyson makes a joke, which it looks like it's going to be at the expense of, of Victor Stock, the former mm-hmm. dean of Guildford Cathedral, but Victor is a canny man and a very wise man and a very smart man. And it was a beautiful moment of seeing that the idea of this battle between religion and science, and it should always be to me, the big human battle is always against dogma and bigotry. Yeah, the joke being that uh, you you have the science corner, isn't it? Yeah. The Infinite Monkey Cage podcast, and uh, he asked the, the the priest or bishop there if he had a uh, science corner. In, uh, yeah, because his- uh, we had a thing. Yeah, it's clerical corner. So Brian, we go. That was fantastic, Neil. Now let's go over to clerical corner. Do they have a physics corner in all of their churches? And then Victor just goes, "Well, in Westminster Abbey, where of course we have Isaac Newton, Stephen Hawking, <laughs> and uh, and also Charles Darwin." Uh, one of the things, and it was this beautiful moment where you just thought, "Yeah, we did. We didn't need antagonism there because there there there, there wasn't a fight required." I mean, that's the thing is it's very easy to understand fundamentalists of, of any hue, mm. religion, political, whatever. I mean, fundamentalists, their certainty, it's much harder when we get into that great big, like that great big murky area between nature and nurture, that great big murky area between myth and reality. You know, it's, it's, it is, it's, it's, a, it's a foggy place. Yeah, that foggy place where where thinking and belief both come into to play because we're we're often told what we should think when it comes to science, but belief we're allowed a little more freedom. And to return to to Robert Anderson Wilson again, he famously said, "You know, I don't believe in anything, but I do have my suspicions." And and to quote the X Files, you know, there's things that I I still want to believe in, and and science often it gets a bad rap for throwing the baby out with the bathwater for disenchanting the world. But in actual fact, Robin, you argue that science can re-enchant the world. I think that the universe now appears so absurd from our experience. Not, obviously, it's not absurd for the universe. It's the way the things are and it's the way the laws are. But for us, it seems so absurd. And I think there's been a lot more writing recently, which is to say you can understand something from the perspective of an equation. Mm. And at the same time, you can place within that. I mean, when, when I I wanted to write about death, for instance, because I think that is one of the, the the great problems to deal with is once you get to a point of believing there is no afterlife and this is all there is, in one way for some of us it's like, oh, great, that gives you a lot of drive and impetus. How long have I got? You've only got 20 years left. I need to read that and I need to go mm. there and I need to question this and I need to look at that star system. But it is, it's, it's, it's a problem. So I wanted to talk about the fact that some people just go, well, you're just dead and that's it and just chuck me in the bin. 
But a lot of people need rituals as well. Can we create rituals mm. that don't place an, an afterlife for God? And, and in fact, a lot of the people that I spoke to were people like like the humanist celebrant Zena. It's because she lost her brother when she was very young, and she saw she had to go and watch this. You know, the funeral where the vicar's going, and of course he's been taken up by God because God loves him so much. And she's like, I don't even know who this God guy is, and we loved him a huge amount, and and so that's why she's looked to find other ways. And again, it goes back. I know I keep. Going Going back to stories, but it really does. I mean, the the, the ceremony that, that she talked about, this fire ceremony where you build a small fire and then there's a huge pile of logs and each person goes up with a log one by one and they tell a story about the person who's died or maybe they're, they're, they're so broken up it's just a sentence or a word and they put the log on the fire and then the next person comes up and the fire gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it gets brighter and hotter and hotter and then also it becomes this incredible beacon of the stories of a life that is gone. And I think, you know, things like that, in one way, there's, you know, you might go, there's nothing scientific, but not everything has. We we have to balance that all the time. We have to balance going, here is reason, and this is why we need to use it here. We need reason at this point, because if we don't use reason, this person may well die, and these people may suffer. And this is why we need to deal with climate change and all of those different issues, or this is why we need to have a better system of getting information out there during a pandemic and making sure that the popular media really gives proper coverage to the people who are studying it and know what they're talking about from the perspective of what was available at the time. But that that still has room. Then, then beyond that, the rest of existence has room to say, I also like believing this. And sometimes, mm. I mean, I, I you know, in Stornoway, which was, you know, I was in Stornoway, I was in the Stones of Kalanish, and I was thinking about the block universe, but I was also thinking the beauty that, that was there. I was thinking about both things at once. And I was standing, it was, it was the only sunny day in the whole of February that Stornoway had. So I was so lucky to be there that day. And I put my hand on one of the stones and I got this incredible sensation, this thing that my imagination suddenly thought of all the other people who had placed their hand on that stone, all mm. the other people over over four and a half thousand years who had stood in that circle, all the other beliefs they had. And you have that moment where suddenly it's the air feels very, very dense. It feels like it is filled with the past. And some people will say, well, that's an energy coming from the stones. Now, I personally, from, from my perspective, think that very mm. often in those experiences, in fact, in almost everything, what we do is we project something out of our mind and then it echoes back on, on us. So I was thinking about the block universe. I was thinking about the beauty of the stones. And then my mind saw this fabulous image of layers and layers of time. And it's something that Alan Moore, of course, deals with very yeah. much in, in his book, Jerusalem. You know, if you, if you go to Northampton after you've read his, and you really should read his book, Jerusalem, anyone listening who hasn't read it, it's incredibly dense, it's incredibly rich. You only have to read a page at a time if you want, because it is sometimes like going, this is the most beautiful meringue I've ever eaten, but I can't have a second meringue. I'm yeah. so full of cream and glass cherries already. And it, and it is, and then you go back to Northampton and the air feels denser. It mm. feels like there are all of those bits of history and all all of those people who have been there before. And that's not, in one way, you could say that might be scientific from looking at the block universe. In fact, I remember, you know, the, one of the first phone conversations I ever had with Alan, I, I went, how are you? And he went, oh, I'm feeling very good today because uh, I've just found out that uh, Einstein agrees with me. <laughs> and Alan actually is a very good example of a human being who, well, he's a very good example of a human, human being, being, actually, yeah. full stop. But he's also someone who has a deep understanding of scientific ideas and an acceptance of some of the most remarkable discoveries of science. But he also has this separate part of him 
or even indeed I won't say separate part, he has found a way where he can also include myth and wonder and what currently appears to be the unprovable. And that doesn't get in the way of him understanding, you know, the double slit experiment. Mm. Ellen Moore is one of those unique individuals who's able to integrate science with with magic. He is mm. a self-confessed magician. And I do wonder, you, you, your description of the block theory of the universe is is so wonderful in the book, and it, it, it finally makes it descriptive in a way that people can finally understand what it is. And I found that the folks like Grant Morrison, Alan Moore, sometimes they do a better job of explaining this form of time that happens as a series of moments rather than as a lineal timeline. They do it so much better through metaphor than some of the scientists do. So should we spend more time with magicians and comic book writers? We should spend time with both. We should always have magicians in the room as well. And it is also that thing, which is science very often. You're almost not allowed to, within certain groups, they have to deliver the science as the science. But... I think many of them are very happy when they go, here's the science, let me hand some of this over to you, Alan, and please do something with it and, and play with it. So the storytelling part of it, I mean, it's a, it's a story I've told many times before, but it's one that I love. We were doing an episode of The Infinite Monkey Cage. It was about perception. And uh, I'd had the biggest argument I'd ever had with, uh, with Brian. We very rarely argue, but we mm. had this full-on row about the fact that I talked about the idea that you cannot observe nature from outside of nature, that mm. we must always remember that we have evolved from with nature, nature and yeah. we might be able to make many machines which mean allow us to create a more and more objective view. But remember that we creators of those machines are a subjective creature as well, but we can narrow it down. Mm. So we'd had this big row and then Alan was on the show as, as well. I think it might be the first time that Brian met Alan. And, <laughs> uh, and we started talking about Julian Jaynes and his idea that by cameral mind and the idea that there was a period of time in uh, where human beings did not realise that their inner monologue was something that they possessed, that they yep. believed it was something that came from the outside. Mm-hmm. And Alan starts talking about the work of Homer, who of course may have been many different people, and he talks about the change in the work of Homer, the Odyssey and the Iliad, and about the way that uh, in the earlier works of Homer, everyone seems to be moved like chess pieces, really, whereas in the later works there is this internal emotional drive so it's like this sense that there was a change, mm-hmm. that we're now not merely being moved by the outside, we are being moved by our, our inner feelings as well. And and there was just this, and, and Brian kept going, no, but I, I don't really see how an Alan would go, he'd, he'd go, no, but I mean, think of the moment where he talks about the wine dark sea and why would it, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And it went on for about 12, 13 minutes. Uh-huh. And eventually Brian had to give up. And and I used to talk about the fact, you know, there is nothing more enjoyable than seeing a particle physicist beaten in an argument by a wizard. <laughs> and uh, and I've seen, I mean, I remember with Alan doing, we did an event with uh, Phil Ball, who is a fantastic yep. science writer, mm-hmm. really. Beyond Weird is a great book about quantum mechanics and and how sometimes we look at it in the wrong way by calling it weird. And, and we did an event at Northampton Labour Club and it was uh, Alan and Phil. And I, I saw quite early on, I could see on Phil's face, he had this look of kind of like, oh, He's read the whole of my book for sure. He's definitely oh, he's really remembered the whole of my book. He's a, he's understood mm. the whole of my book. And then he got to the point where he goes, he's understood the ramifications and some ramifications that I'm not sure I understood that are in the book. And it was a beautiful thing to watch. And that, I think, is why he is such a rare mind and such a fertile mind is because he's able to balance so many different mm. perspectives in there. 
And, and some of those ideas are coming back into popularity, the idea that we might tune into consciousness. Even David Eagleman, who you mentioned in the book, the neuroscientist, he's quite open with the idea that we don't actually know what the brain does and the brain might be creating consciousness or it might be tuning into consciousness like some form of radio. We, we know it lights up in the scanners, but we can't actually prove what it's doing when it does light up. And those playful ways of doing storytelling, I think they're, they're so important for keeping us loose. We don't need to necessarily get dogmatic and believe in a certain form of what consciousness might be or what my reality might be, but it's useful to at least play in those spaces a little bit like, like Alan and like you do, Robin. I think that's the thing is I think play is really, really important. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, it's, it's only when sometimes people turn that play into something which then becomes a tool of manipulation. Yeah. You know, Niels Bohr, of course, there's the great story of Niels Bohr with the uh, Niels Bohr having a lucky horseshoe in his uh, laboratory. I'm sure you know this story. And someone <laughs> saying to him, Niels, surely you don't believe in that? He said, no, I don't believe in it. But apparently it works whether you do or whether you don't, you know, which is a lovely, yeah. just this kind of <laughs> ridiculous thing. But he also would talk about the fact that, you know, at one point he said, everything that is real in the world is ultimately made of something that when you get down to a certain level is no longer real. And that's shocking. Mm. But then you also realise that you have to you have different levels of reality. And that that in itself, when he gets down to that quantum level, that is a fascinating and strange and beguiling thing. But it doesn't actually influence your life. So you live your life on one scale, but yeah. it doesn't mean that you can't play in some of the scales that are either side of you as well. But make sure you don't get too caught up in believing that you're now going to be able to walk through that oak door. <laughs> well, this is this is the thing. We, we we seem to value scientific knowledge above intuition. And we're hoping that some form of new scientific discovery, such as quantum theory, is going to explain that weird intuitive knowledge that we have that guides us in everyday life. And there is this thing that some scientists, they seem to get so hardened. Richard Dawkins, ever since he became a new atheist, has become so incredibly hardened. He does not believe in God, uh, but he also doesn't believe in anything else at all. And and then you've spent a lot of time with someone like Brian Cox. Do you think he believes in anything or does he have to choose to throw this idea of God out? Is the only thing that Brian believes in that things can only get better? (laughs) <laughs> Quite the opposite, of course, as you know, from the <laughs> yeah. laws of entropy, tragically. Um, or not tragically. I mean, this is great, isn't it? We're, we are something that's made from disorder. When things mm-hmm. get messy, every now and again, you end up getting a conscious creature. But I think there's a couple of things. One, I sometimes think with, with Richard Dawkins, it's a problem of empathy. Mm. And it's a problem of understanding what God is for different people. But I want to go a little bit further back. When you said that we all understand the importance of science, I actually think there's a problem, which I think most people are very detached from it, and they pick up all of this amazing technology they have, Mm. and they're utterly blasé. Yeah. about science. I wish we lived in a world where people would sometimes just stop and think, oh my God, you know, look at, as opposed to just going, oh, I can't believe it, I'm in a tunnel and now my phone doesn't work. This is ridiculous. What a useless <laughs> thing. This thing which attaches me to a library that's greater than Alexandria and allows me to just look at pictures of the world and the universe in it. It doesn't work in this tunnel. What a load of rubbish. Why haven't uh-huh. they made a better phone? And and I so I, I think there is a, a problem with not realising the number of steps that have been required to give us the, mm. the current world that we that we have a lot of people have have almost no respect for for science whatsoever they just say make me stuff yeah, yeah. and that's it but i think with brian for instance he 
the God thing isn't really a question for him. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not, it's not, I mean, I think it's, you know, David Cronenberg said this in an interview as well, which he was brought up in an atheist household and he said, but we weren't really atheists. It just wasn't, it didn't matter. Yeah. It was not, you know, I don't wake up in the morning and I think, what would not God do? Because, you know, that's the thing. And, and, and I, I, it's an argument I've had in the past with things. I, I remember talking to a, a, an atheist friend about the fact that my mum believed in heaven. Her dad died when she was young. Uh, she was involved in in uh, a, a major accident, which also was was quite physically damaging to her. Mm. And she believed in heaven. And I never felt the need to say to because she never believed in heaven and said, and that's why we now need to go to that house where that that those two gay men live and set fire to it or anything like that. You know what I mean? She <laughs> it was never a drive for a form. She just believed in heaven. Yeah. And I just never saw. And this this atheist friend of mine said, "Oh, well, that's not being a good atheist because you should argue." And I go, "Why? Because it's not it's not getting in the way of her being a, a lovely human being and wanting to help people." But she just happens to have that belief, and and I said I would happily lie to her, and I have. You know, I, I, well, she, she's no longer with it, but but I remember once when she was going through a particularly bad period, and she, and she was in tears, and she she said, "Oh, and scientists have proved there's no heaven." And I said, "No, they haven't." I said, "Don't mm. worry about that." You know, they haven't done that, and 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 I think you know one of the things that is freeing to me to not have a really hard and fast specific set of rules that are written in a book, and of course, even then, you find out, of course, people pick the rules that they want in so many different forms of of, of of dogmatic thinking. But it gives me a greater freedom. I'm not going to get in trouble from not God by saying, oh, yeah, yeah there's heaven, don't worry about it. Why, why do I want to argue? What, what is the point at the end of the day? But how, Robin, how did you get interested in science? You're such a free and open thinker. And why was science the, the thing that caught your interest? Do you know what? It, it wasn't just science. I, I'm one of those people who I have no depth whatsoever because I just like if, 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 if you saw the number of ridiculous books that I've got a, a, around me at the moment. I I just basically the older I've got, the more that I've realised from from various issues with the basic way that my mind works, which I'm only just really getting to the bottom of now. Is I just uh-huh. like pouring stuff into my head and then shaking it up and seeing yeah. what comes out. And and science was I, I think particularly what the reason I became fascinated was because I had loved it. I had found it such a beautiful thing when I was a kid and then I got to uh you know teenage uh when you when you're at secondary school and you're being taught science and uh it seemed detached from everything exactly what you said it seemed to disenchant the universe in fact it wasn't even mm-hmm. about the universe it was about levers and it was about pulleys and it was about <laughs> burning peanuts under test tubes containing water if you were lucky that was the most yeah. exciting day that you had was burning a peanut and seeing the temperature change in a test tube containing water and then I read this it was a I think it was a front page bit of news in 1993 which just said echoes from the big bang can still be heard around the universe and i was like what but the universe is enormous and the big bang was ages ago how can this be true and that you know that that nausea that you get when you first start thinking about the size of the universe and just that kind of, you know, very palpable sensation, the kind of shock that is there as well. That was one of the things that started to get me back into. And I also thought I need to understand the world a little bit more and I need to be a better critical thinker. Mm -hmm. I need to know when I'm being misled and I need to know why one story is better than another story. Well, it does feel like you're desperately seeking something, Robin. Are you you looking for answers? Are you looking for the meaning of life or what it means to be human or why reality is weird? What is the big question you're looking to, uh, to resolve? 
Do you know what? I don't. I really don't think I have because I think I've never been a fundamentalist in any. Because I think some of the atheists you read about them and they did have a period of time in their life when they were quite full on in their religion. Yeah. And I think sometimes if you have that in you, it can be hard to lose it in its entirety. It's like you know mm. some of those right wing columnists that used to be Trotskyists and they think they've changed, but they haven't changed. They've swapped their kind of Trotskyism for quite often you know a far right agenda. They've 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 merely you know extremism is very close to each other. It yeah. might look like they're poles apart but actually they're very very close and joining up on that kind of circle so i i think the older that i am i I think for me the drives that i have are that i really do want people to be happy Mm. and i really it's what i worry about every show that i do i'm always in the back of my mind i'm thinking are they okay are they having a good time and i do think a lot about especially in the last few years there's david bowie rock and roll suicide you know such a great song and there's a little bit where yeah there's a moment in the song where he he sings oh no love you're not alone and every time i hear that it's like bang and i really do worry about people's kind of living their life with all of their inner thoughts keeping them all in mm. and being too scared to to say them and when you first start doing things on stage or writing books where people suddenly come up to you just in a record shop and they say they found something in it and it was useful and it made them feel better and they would, you know, and they, it might have been when they were going through a bad time or whatever. That's kind of, it really is what drives me now. And that's not, that's not an altruistic act, by the way, just in case I'm now trying to, because of course it's, an, you know, what we're all looking for is some kind of sense of purpose. One of the things that I'm doing with my shows and with my writing is I can go through quite long, bleak periods and I can really battle with some of those things. And by then making myself sit down and go, Mm. don't look at what's trending on Twitter. Don't get caught up with what's in the newspapers. Don't watch the Jeremy Vine show where someone's (laughs) been paid money to be contradictory and unpleasant, right? Start thinking about the stars today and start thinking about some of the other humans. Start thinking of Jane Goodall watching those Mm. chimpanzees and changing our view of what it is to be human and what it is to be a chimpanzee. And she did that in a non-scientific way, what was considered to be a non-scientific way. She didn't do what was considered to be the right science at the time. She was not a trained scientist. She just went out in the field and she started looking at chimpanzees and she didn't just look at one certain area which you were meant to do. You're meant to go, you look at one piece of behaviour, which is, of course, such a ludicrous idea because all of our behaviour is such a kind of, you know, a, a mix from so many different things. Uh, you can't just go, and that's anger over there. Well, no, anger is also, there's love there in anger and, and there's shame there in anger and there's all of those things. And, you know, when she came back, there were people who said, oh, well, you've done, done it all wrong. You gave the chimpanzees names and you gave them personalities. And you go, well, they do have personalities. Yeah. Like, you know, the, we're, 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 you know it's, it's, an inc- it's an incredible thing, the work that she did. So it is, yeah, it, it's kind of, I think that's my drive is that I'm just really interested in knowing how human minds work and how we are attached to everything and that rather than disenchantment you know more and more as I wrote the book and of course now doing shows about it I would write a different book already because there's Mm -hmm. new things that I've realized and that'll probably become the next book there are new things that are important to me James Baldwin who's someone that I I admire enormously an incredible you know writer and activist and so beautiful to watch I mean if you, you you watch him doing debates and you watch him being interviewed and you watch the passion, you know, there was uh, a, a man who grew up in, you know, a racist society and fought against that, you know, that, 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 that racism and tragically so much of what he said 50 years ago remains as relevant now. But he said this line where he, where he said, I think the reason people hate so much is because if they stopped hating, then they would have to deal with their pain 
Yeah. You know, I've, I used to do lots of stand-up shows where I'd jump around and be really angry about stuff. You know, I think probably a, a, an absurdist way to some extent. But then I just thought, no, I, I want to do things which mean that people leave and they go, oh, I feel happier. Mm. I don't feel that he was right. I ha- am wearing an awful jumper and I was sat in the front row looking a bit fatter than everyone or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, all of that kind of, yeah. And, and so a lot of it is a battle with, with not merely the negativity of the world, but also the possible negativity of my mind as well. Yeah, I think James Baldwin there, he just encapsulated what Twitter mm, feels like. Very much and so. And certainly is. But regardless, you, you still ask these big questions. You play with these big questions in the book. And I have to ask, who gives you the most satisfying answer to the question of the meaning of life? Is it Douglas Adams? Is it Monty Python? Or is it one of the many scientists that you interviewed? <laughs> it's really hard, that, you know, because, I mean, someone that I admire a great deal in their writing is Brian Greene and his most recent book until the end of time uh, to me for, for what I might want from science, I think is, is his most satisfying book. And what I love about talking to Brian is he always listens to the question and he reacts to the question. And I've, I've interviewed him and met him on many occasions and he is properly connected to whoever is asking him things. Mm-hmm. And, and I find, you know, Brian's answers and then seeing his own kind of, you know, sometimes looking at the fact that, you know, he's a very scientific mind without any, you know, kind of, uh, without any great mystical belief. But then in the book, he talks about when his father died and the importance of some of the rituals that were around him as well. But then also, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, Jane Goodall, and Alan Moore and Faye Dowker, who's at Imperial. And I love talking to Sarah Parkak, who's, you know, a space archaeologist and, uh, you know, taking images from outer space and basically then being able to view the earth below and seeing these incredible patterns of civilizations that we, in places sometimes that we didn't even know existed and places where in that kind of, you know, white European explorer way, we just said, well, these are primitive people. And uh, without then going, hang on a minute, they live in a place that would kill us within about a week. So they found, you know, they have a scientific understanding which is not necessarily written, and so much of what we do is based on, and the way we judge people has been based on on the texts that are left behind as opposed to the fact, the way that they, those people have survived and built around. So um, Sarah is great because Sarah, her interaction with time, I think is, you know, when when she she says she finds it harder and harder now, for instance, when, they, when they're doing a dig and, they, and you find the body of a child and mm. your realisation that, the human beings that existed 5,000 years ago and the human beings that exist now, that actually in terms of their emotion, their desires, their loves and their hates were basically they're the same thing. And, you know, we like to imagine that we go back in time and and then we kind of, we've got the best minds ever. No one's had a mind. But, you know, we've got more information. Well, then again, of course, there were periods of time where we had information and we lost information. So I think there's a there's a very, very long list and it will often depend on the on, on the day. James Baldwin is someone who inspires me enormously. I think it's quite remarkable, you know, the, the, the poetry and, and the sadness as well of his life. Do you think the thing about big questions is that they're never going to be answered? They're big questions precisely because of that, because there will never be good answers. And that's why we find them so fascinating. Yeah, I think, you know, going back to that thing, answering a question with a question. 
Yeah. The big questions grow questions from them. I mean, it's like that great thing of when I'm studying stuff to try and work out how I'm going to interview someone. And I will sometimes go, oh, I can't work out exactly how to ask this question, which means I need to read their work again, because it means I still don't really understand their work. Because once you can start to frame the question, then you've moved to a different level of understanding. <laughs> you, you had me on trying to understand to ask questions. So I feel I feel that way in many, in many cases. My head was going, I need to ask Robin yeah. another question. And my head was also going, oh God, I really do feel like that sometimes. And then I realised my failure to ask a question now is because I was thinking about which questions I should ask. But where I was going to go was science fiction because we spent some time talking about science, but it feels like you are such a science fiction fan. And, and, and the ideas captured in science fiction, the great thing about them is they don't have to always worry about the science. They can borrow from the science, but they can just assume that the science has already been solved. And, and in popular culture today, Marvel, the, the Marvel universe is making us more and more comfortable with this weird idea of the multiverse, Avatar, the, the popular James Cameron film made us comfortable with biotechnology, Pokemon made us comfortable with chimeras, The Matrix has done more for the simulation theory than Nick Bostrom ever will. What do you think the importance of science fiction is in just helping us, I guess, again, play with some of these weird scientific ideas? Well, again, that's the thing is they're allowed to, the first priority is to turn it into a story. I mean, I think of something like Never Let Me Go as well by Kasuo Ishiguro yeah, as well, which is a fascinating one. In fact, what have I got? The two I've got with me at the moment, I haven't read this yet. This was recommended to me by a man called Jez Winship. He's a very interesting author. Babel 17, have you read that? No, I haven't. Many no. very good, Sam Delaney. And the other one is, oh, where's it gone? I've got A for Andromeda as well, although it's not called that. The Oh, that's actually keeping my computer balanced, so I can't take that out or the whole thing falls. But yeah, so that's keeping everything balanced there. But it is it's the way that you, you think you're reading just a story. Mm. And then like, you know, with Douglas Adams, where as a kid, I just thought these are amazingly absurd ideas. And then you find out these are based on ideas of physics. And I and I think, so I think it is about the the room for play. I'm trying to think of, you know, I love reading Philip K. Dick, even though very often he writes the same book over and over again. It's a good <laughs> story and I'll true. read it one more time. And, you know, reading people like Octavia Butler as well, which was, was a, a real, you know, incredible. I, I was like, why have I never read Octavia Butler before? Or Margaret Atwood, you know, Margaret Atwood, mm. who now is, you know, because she's considered to be so good, people try and pretend that, she, well, it's not science fiction that I'm reading. I'm reading a proper literary book. Yeah, but it's still science fiction as well. Or you think of, you know, Arrival, you know, and Ted Chiang's, I've forgotten the name now. What's, what's that blinking story called that, that Arrival's based on? An incredible bit of work. In fact, I love, you know, Villeneuve's films, I think, are fantastic. Fantastic! I loved I loved his follow up to to Blade Runner. I can't wait to see. Uh, you know, he's just done June, hasn't he? I was just reading about that in the Fortean Times, and they are they're, they're packed with ideas, but you don't know. It's that trick, isn't it? You didn't realise that you were learning something. Sometimes you. It's, it's what I did with when I started thinking I must put on shows which got scientists in them. One of the things that I would do is I put on a live show, and there'd be a comedian like Noel Fielding there, and there'd be a musician like Robin Hitchcock or someone like that. My friend Josie Long would come along and do something, and then just when they weren't expecting it, I'd sneak in a theoretical physicist. They go, "Hang on, we came for music and comedy. What's this about a theoretical physicist all of a sudden?" But it is, yeah. I, I mean, like Interstellar is that great example isn't it where you know Christopher Nolan and you know Kip Thorne and that was you know oh this is going to be the most scientifically accurate film but then there was one bit where Christopher Nolan says to Kip Thorne nah but I have to do this bit oh it's not scientifically accurate I know but I need it for the story 
And I love that as well, that every now and again, it's like The Martian, you know, Andy Weir, who explores so many interesting things, you know, and Andy Weir's the book, The Martian, is a fantastic read. I've not read his latest one. I've heard it's utterly brilliant. And it's, you know, all very scientific, apart from the fact that the reason that he gets trapped on Mars in the first place is something that would never happen on Mars. But we don't <laughs> need to worry about that. So, so the first bit, not science. Yeah. Actually, the rest is, though. It's okay. Yeah, is, is the interstellar one by any chance the fact that he gets trapped behind his daughter's bookcase? Is that the... Uh... It's probably not that bit, actually. Oh, it it's kind of bit? It's weird, that film, because I thought everyone loved it, and I really loved it, and then I found out a lot of people had had uh, had problems with it. But uh, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed Interstellar. That's interesting. It does feel like science fiction authors and, and, and science fiction creators, they do do a lot of, I guess, damage in a weird sort of way, because if you scratch a scientist, you find out often that the reason they got into a certain form of science was because of some science fiction story that they read. And in a weird sort of way, it does feel like science fiction authors are the people who actually create the future and the scientists follow what the science fiction authors have been doing. The best example of that is especially when it comes to space travel. A lot of this stuff looks the way it does because of the way in which it was imagined in science fiction in the first place. Well, that's the funny thing, isn't it? The fact that actually spaceships you know, can be a lot lumpier. Yeah. The thing, because you don't need to worry about having, you know, those those lines, the fine lines to to manage to cut through uh, the vacuum of space. I mean, that's why I always feel that Star Wars did a great disservice in some ways. I know people are enormous fans of it, and I didn't mean no insult to any anyone who's, yeah, even though whenever I meet Star Wars fans, they seem to hate almost all the Star Wars films. Such a weird thing that you get where oh, I couldn't stand the last one. Oh, I hated that one. Oh, I hated that one. Well, which ones do you like? I don't think you like any of the Star Wars. For if someone who buys all the merchandise and says you love it, I can't find the film you like. But uh, I like Empire Strikes Back. Okay, so there's one film. All right. Um, but uh, I, I think that is not a film which it's a cowboy movie. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with cowboy movies. But I think there was a period of time where certainly my generation were brought up on, you know, science fiction that was not about ideas, it was about repackaging one of the seven basic plots. And I think now we're going through a very rich time, as you said, you know, whether it's Villeneuve's films, whether it's, you know, some of the Marvel Universe and certainly some of the TV spin-offs that are coming out that I watch with my son that have lots of fascinating little ideas that you can then go off and explore. I think that's that's all great. But it's also surreal time. I mean, what did you make of Captain Kirk going actually to space? William Shatner going to space? Oh, I always have a problem with this. Because <laughs> I there's you something <laughs> I have, I've got. Uh, it's not about him going into space. Mm. It's I'm not sure about the drive of the men who are leading this particular bit of the supposed yeah. space race. Mm. And you know, I'm lucky enough to have met astronauts and spent time with them, and the humility that they have, and the drive that they have, and the way that they have come back with their sense of what the Earth below is seems to me to offer something different to, you know, someone from Amazon or, you know, Richard Branson, whatever it might be. Yeah. But, I'm, you know, I hope it leads somewhere useful. But there's something about, I don't know, there's something about the ego of it that I'm just not very yeah. sure about. It used to be that you'd have to have the right stuff to go to space, and now all you need to do is to have either started a book company that, that sells books online or be very popular in a 1960s TV show. There is a weird sort of uh, disconnect there. It used to show the best of humanity going to space, and now it's whoever can afford 
gets to go to space. It's no longer a collective endeavor like it used to be. Like you mentioned actually in the book, you know, it was we who went to space, us collectively together, and now it's them who's going to space, whether mm. it's Elon, Branson, or Bezos. And I think also there is that thing that, you know, Nicole Stott, who uh, I've just got her book actually, I haven't read it yet, it's only just arrived, but, you know, Nicole is someone, you know, she spent a long time on the ISS. She was, she was the last astronaut to come back on the space shuttle. And Nearly all the astronauts that I've spoken to, even like Rusty Schweikart from Apollo 9 is someone who really feels that we need to be reaching out to space. Mm. But all of them also seem to have found it incredible. What really going in space has done is prove how fragile our planet is and that the we must make sure we do not fall for a storyline that says, don't worry, we're going to do, you know, we're just going to go into space and then we're going to populate Mars because mm. you might be able to terraform Mars, but the Earth is pre-terraformed. Yeah. Here's somewhere that actually is, you know, and, and, and we must make sure that we don't start falling for dreams of escape when the best place to live is always going to be here. You know, the, the most terrifying future narratives that I hear are, you know, the reason we need to go to Mars is because we need to develop terraforming technology because when we turn the planet Earth into this inhospitable environment, the terraforming technology that we would have developed for Mars, we can use here on Earth. And I'm sitting there thinking, Jesus, why don't we just not mess up Earth in the yeah. first place? And and you have, a, you have a wonderful chapter on aliens in the book. And the best thing I heard recently about the Fermi Paradox which, of course, Robin, you know a lot about, but it's the idea that the reason we've never found aliens is because they never get past that point of technological advancement where they can get off planet. I heard an inverse of the Fermi paradox recently, which was the reason we've never found aliens is because they never created an extractive corporate capitalist environment <laughs> whereby you could create billionaires who would go to space. Instead, they created an idealized environment on their own planet, looked around and went, hey, what's the point of leaving this? This is pretty damn good. Why don't we just stay here? We don't want to go out there. And perhaps maybe that's it. Maybe that's what we need to realise. That's funny because that, that's that's exactly, I've, I've thought that in the past as well. <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the idea of, of always saying we've got to make sure we stay here and keep everything nice and just, yeah. I mean, as you know, I'm, I mentioned in one of my favourite science fiction novels of all time is Roadside Picnic that was also turned into to the film um, Stalker. Both very different works. I mean, it's fascinating. I would recommend both of those works to, to people, but I love the the, the beginning of Roadside Picnic, it's basically the setup is aliens came to Earth. They didn't even notice anyone was here. They, it was the equivalent of pulling in a lay-by outside Luton and they had their picnic and they chucked all their junk out of the car window as such and then just went back off into space. And that, that I, you know, because we have all those different versions of the day the Earth stood still or it came from out of space, but that idea of that the aliens pop by, leave their junk and then just disappear. Um, I'm not sure what we find most uh, terrifying as human beings, the idea that there's going to be some aliens that are going to come and colonise our planet, or aliens that just realise we're not that interesting, not yeah. that very important, mostly harmless, as Douglas Adams yeah, put yeah. it. That, that's almost more of an insult than the aliens coming down and, and taking over our planet. Well, it's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because if, if aliens visit us, that obviously means that they have greater technology than we have. Mm. It means that they've got further with their civilization. 
as has been mentioned on on many occasions you know that that our attitude when we have visited places you know when 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 the the colonialism the peak times of colonialism our attitude to anyone who we decided was simpler than us because we may not have understood them yeah. was very often genocide which is not a uh, you know you can see why Stephen Hawking was kind of, you know, like, uh-oh, I'm not sure it's such a good idea to send out signals. What if they do come here and go, yeah, I need that, and I'll eat that, and I'll take that? Well, that's, that's it, isn't it? Science fiction is often a projection of our own psyche. When we used to do live podcast recordings, we'd always get members of the audience put their hand up and go, oh, this reminds me of episode two, season one of Black Mirror. And every question used to have Black Mirror as the, as the beginning or the entry point into their own psychosis about a certain form of future that may arise. But I want to ask you a quick speed round of questions, yeah. Robin, because there is so much that you you cover in this book. So I want to ask you, if you had to pick, if you had to pick a favourite child, what scientific theory would you find or do you find most mind boggling? For some reason, I think it is time. Yep. I think it is that idea of falling into a black hole. You know, I, I, I did a bit of a kind of straw poll when I was doing this book. And of all the scientists that I interviewed, I think it was probably over 75% of them when I said, how would you like to die if you could die anyway, was falling into a black hole. <laughs> because that idea of going over the event horizon, of then having such a different ability to look back out of the event horizon and see the universe sped up, to see galaxies forming and destroyed uh, is, to me, it's, you know, time always felt like it was just, you know, as, as you said before, it's this horizontal line, isn't it? Mm. And in fact, it moves the same speed everywhere. And I also find it utterly, you know, perplexing that idea that the faster we move, the fact that everything in our body goes and now we adapt to so so in, in terms of metabolism, mm. in terms of so so we never really experience the changing of time going faster or slower because we are within that frame. So that idea that you look out of the black hole and there is your one chance to go here before I am spaghettified, I am able to watch out a spectacle which is possible because of my different experiencing of time. Well, if little Robin actually became a scientist instead of a comedian and a science communicator, what field do you think you would have specialised in? I, I could never have been one. I don't have the tenacity. <laughs> I'm a flibbity gibbet. Um, I, I, I think I would have... I, I really, it's very, very hard because I just think I don't have the mind that is, is is required for that. But I love Darwin so much and I love these moments where we keep unearthing things and finding out that the variety within nature is, uh, you know, the, the number of things that we never knew existed, the number of, you know, it's, I, I really am fascinated in how everything is connected, how we are connected with yeast, about how the fact that, you know, the, the, the same, I will, with enormous inverted commas around it, the same technology that is in use for cell replication is then shared with everything mm. else. I find that line of connection really beautiful. So I think it would probably have been in that area. I would have been terrible at it and I would have been sacked. This sounds like what you actually wanted to do, Robin, was beer brewing. All this talk of yeast. <laughs> well, you know that you know the story of Paul Nurse, who who won the Nobel Prize, shared the Nobel Prize for his work, which has uh, you know changed the the in terms of our, our understanding of, of cancer. And the reason that he won the Nobel Prize was he was no good at French. And uh, <laughs> in the days when he wanted to go into the university to get to university, you apparently needed to have a modern language degree, and he just couldn't ever pass a, a modern language um, O level, uh, which is what GC 
GCSEs used to be, and he could not pass French. He did it five, six, seven times. So he couldn't go to university. So he went to work in a brewery. There we go. And then he wins the Nobel Prize eventually, <laughs> all because he could not speak French. Yeah, well, correlation isn't causation. So, yeah. so go, go yeah. into- oh, by the way, if anyone out there is going, oh, if I fail French, will I win the Nobel Prize? It no. requires a lot of other things there. Yeah, you're, you're more likely to just, just work in the brewery instead and stay in the, in, in the brewery. Uh, what big scientific idea do you hope will turn out to be right? Oh, that's, I mean, what I would really like, it's not so much what would turn out to be right. I would be. I would be fascinated to know what new question would be created should we ever be able to understand what happened in that first 10 to the minus 38 second. Mm. That idea of being able to go back to what will for a moment, I suppose, appear to be a time without time Mm. and then seeing where it takes us. But I think, you know, it's an interesting thing of whether we are, I mean, as Carlos Frank, you know, said that the, the trouble is that 10 to the minus 38 of a second isn't really 10 to the minus 38 of a second. It's, a, it's, it's the frame that we use for a period of time, which might not have time as we know it. Mm. That's, that's a big ask and it's not going to happen in my lifetime. <laughs> well, for our listeners, you've got Charles Darwin standing behind you. And historically, we, we look to these great scientists and you're living amongst some modern great scientists who luckily find what you do very funny and find that humour is one of the ways through which to communicate their science. But do you think there's anything that Einstein or Charles Darwin would have found funny about science in their times? Well, Charles Darwin, of course, one of the things that he found not merely funny but infuriating was the size of a peacock's tail. As he, as he says in one of his books, the sight of the feathers in a peacock's tail makes me sick. So I would have imagined there were times when he was furious as he watched peacocks running around his garden in Kent and then might start to find it funny as they tripped over and as they failed to, despite the enormous fan they had behind them, manage to woo the female. So I think there might have been, you know, that's... And, and of course, Einstein had a tremendous, you know, sense of humour, that great story of him with Charlie Chaplin, where they're both being cheered as they go into a movie screening and he says they're cheering you because they understand you and because you and they're cheering me because they don't understand me at all. And it's just that kind of, you know, that interesting thing. So he was, you know, a very uh, funny man in his, in his, uh, in his well, with a great sense of humour. Well, on that wonderful note, they say that the best science communicators and lecturers, that they they make their audiences feel smarter, not dumber. And you've certainly made me feel smarter, Robin. And for that reason, <laughs> I want to thank you for being a guest on the Futures Podcast. Thank you so much, Luke. Thank you to Robin for sharing his enthusiasm for all aspects of scientific inquiry. You can find out more by purchasing his new book, The Importance of Being Interested, Adventures in Scientific Curiosity, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.